sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. Do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You bruised half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome, friends, to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. We are the story guys at gmail.com. That's how you get involved in the show and you get your question answered. Like this like one. This one. Uh, I know that Jim Morrison was a handsome train wreck, but is it true he once got in a fight on stage with Jimi Hendrix? Uh, that's from yeah. Carla from St. Petersburg. Carla from St. Pete. What a great one, man. I've always kind of heard this, too. It's totally interesting. And by the way, handsome train wreck, I wish someone had put those things together for me. I think I've only was <laughs> one, and I don't know if it was handsome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Hey, remember Ben Stiller's show? That it didn't age very well, but there was a skit on it called Oliver Snowland. Oh yeah, and the and the and it had and it had the thing on it where this is what I think when I hear the Doors sometimes when someone mentions it, I I imagine the animatronic Jim Morrison going break on through, break on through, and that's what I hear um, instead of hearing you know yeah the the organ. I have right? this very specific memory of riding home. From the first break I had my freshman year of college, I rode home with my friend Matt, and I'm pretty sure everyone in the car was really high except for me, and they put on Riders in the Storm, and I remember going through a tunnel on the interstate listening to Riders, <laughs> just being like, I still don't get this. So my, I have another friend, Zach, and he likes to play this game where you get just one band from rock history that you can just totally disown. And, you know, you've got to respect rock history, but if there's, you can have one band that you're like, this band does not work for me. And his band, ACDC. So you, based on the game, you could not give him grief for it. Right, right, right. So I just have to accept that he doesn't like ACDC. But he's not here, and you don't know him, so you can go ahead and express your true opinion about people who don't like ACDC. I, I just well I don't get it. I mean, there's a couple things. There's a couple things here. Remember, remember when Trump did the campaign speech and he flew in over Mount Rushmore? He played Thunderstruck. People probably don't even know that ACDC isn't from here. They don't even know they're Australian. It's so, the great American band. They're so American. They're so great. They're the best band I've ever heard. People are saying they're the best American band. And I came home from college. My freshman year, like it was Thanksgiving to hang out with friends. So you do the family thing and you want to go party and get hammered with your friends. We went to Big Jim's country. That's where I went to meet everybody oh, thinking man. I'd have fun. But that sounds amazing. Know, they're line dancing. And I don't know how to do that because <laughs> I'm listening to like just metal and they're line dancing to Girls Got Rhythm. Right. <laughs> I can see and like imagine people clapping and then spinning around and whatever the line dancing thing is. Uh, we, um, we can yeah. agree that for you and me, that band that we don't want grief for not liking is not ACDC. We both like ACDC a lot. For me though, yes, I, that band I for me is it's the Doors. Like I, right. I, don't, I don't like yeah. games like that, and I don't like to be negative about music. But if you were going to pin me down and say. What is a rock band you do not understand? It is The Doors. I don't get it. Right. Right. And so, and I don't want to go generational or anything because I feel like I was introduced to it and then I got to listen to it and I got his poetry and uh, and then I saw the Oliver Stone movie. But I can imagine for some people coming in at a different, you know, at a different time that it feels self-indulgent and cartoonish and... But at the time, it was probably like super heavy. Well, right? let me say part of this 
for me is definitely the music. Like I think it sounds mediocre at best most of the time. But I will also say the Jim Morrison handsome savior thing definitely adds to my disdain. Like, let me ask you this. Movie star handsome, just for a second, think of someone you know personally in your life who you would consider movie star handsome. I don't count. And I, I just ask a question. I want to ask you a question. Picture this person. Do you trust this person? Like, truly trust them deep down. Brian, I think you have some things to work on. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know exactly what that means. Okay. I don't know what that I've means. Got, I've got stuff to talk about with my therapist tomorrow. Uh, but regardless of any of that, I have learned, thanks to the internet, that my suspicious opinion of this band is not an opinion I hold alone. In fact... Aside from plenty of Reddit threads asking why the fuck this band got popular in the first place, there is a pop music critic for the LA Times named Mikhail Wood who wrote a piece in 2020 with this headline. Self-quarantine challenge. The doors are rock gods. I've always hated them. Can I learn to love them? And he lands pretty quickly in the same place I do with this overarching irritation with Morrison. But he makes some pretty good points about uh, his own hypocrisy. Yeah, and I remember it because... That headline just was awesome. But, you know, he actually compares him to Danzig. And you know how I feel about Danzig. Uh-huh. He's, like a te- he's like a kitty cat teddy bear for me. And Danzig kind of was a construct. Like he, yeah, well, there's an he Elvis was playing a character. Vampire he was playing a character, thing. Murdoch. Like, I don't think Morrison yeah. was playing right. a character. I think with Morrison, it's about earnestness. And, it you know, with Danzig, it's about being in on the joke, right? I mean, he may be an a-hole, but... Like he's sort of in on the thing he's doing. I I think Morrison right. thought he was what he was trying to project, but I mean I don't know. Right. So that you know the music that you don't like is playing in the background. You know the circus music with the organ that you hate. The whatever the organ grinder. <laughs> I don't thing hate happening. organs. I don't necessarily like how they use the organ in the doors, but I don't hate organs. I mean I love the County Crows. Okay, I'm not saying you hate organs. I'm saying you hate this particular organ. <laughs> I got, I got really passionate organ. about not hating organs. You want to hear a fun organ story? Uh, yeah, this, so I'm ready. At some point, my dad ended up like brought home an organ when I was a kid. And my mom was so pissed. You know how like everybody, everybody's mom and dad had that pushing pull of like, here's the thing that I'm bringing into this shared space. And here's yeah. the thing that I don't appreciate you bringing into the shared space. And it was this whole thing. And like, my dad does not know how to play the organ. Uh, my sister and mother both were piano players, but not really organ players. So we just like had this useless organ for a while. And it was awesome. And I don't know whatever happened to it. Like, I don't know what, what they did with it. I'm going to have to ask uh, next time you I see should, it. You should, because that was probably a, a bone of contention, you know. But so the, sure. the, the difference really we were talking about that's with Danzig, obviously thinking about it as a character, is that while the band could improvise, he could really, he could improvise spoken word poetry that's that's his. And it does take, a special level of earnestness and and look and and confidence oh, to do dude, that. It totally, does. totally. So uh, let's do some deeper biography on Jim before we get any further into this. You ever heard the car wreck story? What? Yeah, it's a super it's a super important part of of his life. So here's okay. He's born in Melbourne, Florida, so he wasn't born on Mars. Uh, <laughs> James James Doug Morrison. So he he his stage name was just Jim. December 8th, 43. So that meant he would be 80 next month if he was still around. Now, it's worth saying that because he does belong in this class of legendary celebrities who didn't age, right? And that's yeah, something right. that I, it sometimes 
unaccounted for in conversations when you're talking about people like him. And he, he dies at 27. And I will admit, we were all a little annoying at 27. It, well, <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm going to say, yeah. Okay, so here's the car wreck story. And it actually, it's it's referenced in the Oliver Stone movie too. And it's it's how they do it in, this, in the movie is kind of interesting. So he used to tell this story and it's inside um, Peace Frog. It's a spoken word stuff. And, and basically he claimed when he was little kid, like three or four, that he was in a car, like there was a car accident. So they're slowing down the highway, driving by it. There was a truck turned over and there were Native American people, like indigenous people that were lying injured on the road. Well, okay. So here, here is, you mentioned that from Peace Frog. Here's the line. Peace in, Frog. Indians scattered on Don's highway bleeding. Ghosts crowd the young child's fragile eggshell mind. So he used this as a talking point. Like imagine sort of like this is the the beginning of how things started for the inspiration for him, his, his artistic inspiration. And the reason it would come up is he would say that he soaked up the spirits of those natives mm. that were on the road. But his family has always said that that was an exaggeration. So the family hasn't helped out his like his lore at all. So his sister even has this quote, quote, he enjoyed telling that story and exaggerating it. He said he saw a dead Indian by the side of the road. And I don't even know if that's true End quote. Well, whether or not any of that is true, isn't the point that you're driving at though, right? Your point seems to be, which I, and I think it's a good one is that this dude was very intense and back to that other word, earnest and probably a little bit full of shit at times. Yeah. Like the best of us. But and one other thing about him. So he is one part sex god. Please see Val Kilmer's leather pants. And <laughs> formerly said Oliver Stone movie. But he's also one of the first rock stars to be inspired by literature. Right. And philosophy. So the Beatles will get there, you know, eventually. But Jagger and John and Paul in the early days, they weren't like they weren't quoting like Plutarch or Kafka. That wasn't like so part of this what is, they were doing. You, that's a great point too. And it's just another example of what makes him so easy to be annoyed by for me. Yeah. And so uh, Jim, the, the band starts with Jim and uh, his buddy, Ray, Ray Manzarek, and they meet in film school. Keep in mind, early sixties and film schools exist in Europe as early as like 1919. They don't really enter high level universities in the U S until right around this general time period. What existed up until then where they it sort of had a wider focus. So you would go to school and you would study theater, et cetera, right? And it would sort of bleed into film and television, but that was all emerging. So I was thinking about this while doing the research. Do you think that part of the stereotype of film students being pretentious is actually because of Jim Morrison? Like what came first, the chicken or the I live on a rooftop and survive on LSD and beans while reading Nietzsche Ake? So do you think that my cinema studies minor was inspired by The Lizard King? I mean, you got to tell me. I took films. I will tell you, I took intro to film my freshman year of college, and it was the hardest class I took that year. Oh, I took film design and like women's sexuality in film and, and stuff like that and made a W in at least one of them. I withdrew from one. <laughs> I was like, I'm getting an F. Um, oh, listen. I eventually got 15 hours. All joking aside, it's worth discussing how much Morrison will go on to actually be the representation of a rock star, right? Like Mick Jagger gets a lot of the credit and he's definitely involved, but I, I sort of forget how close these two bands are to each other. So timeline it, Satisfaction hits in 1965, Light My Fire is in 1967. And we've discussed on a former episode of this show that the dancing that Jagger becomes famous for was likely picked up while he was on tour with Tina Turner in, in 66. So yep. it's all happening really close together. And here's something interesting because... 
people that may not be familiar with, they might think that Jim Morrison and Van Morrison are brothers. Jim on stage is that actually kind of attributable to Van, kind of. They famously play together in 66, and it can be argued that Jim picks up a lot of Van's tricks. And this is a quote from Brian Hinton's book. It's called uh, Celtic Crossroads, The Art of Van Morrison. Quote, Jim Morrison learned quickly from his near namesake's, namesake's stagecraft, his apparent recklessness, his air of subdued menace, the way he would improvise poetry to a rock beat, even his habit of crouching down by the bass drum during instrumental breaks, which if you watch the, the, the famous, whatever the live film that they have, like that's the thing. Like I, I think about Morrison doing that where there's these long instrumental breaks. And instead of like, you know, at the front of the stage at the lip, he's, he's not, he's kind of almost his back turned. So, I mean, this gets me back to this conversation about Morrison dying young. So Van Morrison, Van Morrison did not die young. He's still alive. And and well, we've all seen how he's turned out. And honestly, I think that most rock fans wouldn't call Van Morrison a rock musician now. I mean, that may be a controversial right. statement, right? But like I don't really think of him in the same sentence as somebody like Mick Jagger, right? He's definitely not usually in that conversation when you're talking about who invented rock and roll swagger. But as this points out, he pretty clearly inspired the guy who is. So, in this experiment, if Van had died at 27, would we think about him differently? And if, if Morrison had not died at 27, would we maybe not think of him as being a rock god in the same way because of what he would have done subsequently? Right. It, it's the Morrison with the shirt off is where we're imprinted. The young Morrison is all we're ever going to see. So he, that's where he's stuck in time, right? And we'll talk about that. There's other things that make Morrison the shining example of the rebellious rock star. And that's pissing off Ed Sullivan and being the first rocker really to get arrested on stage. Oh man. You're, yeah. You're, you're coming to the good stuff here. Uh, we we got to get to those stories. Go ahead and lay out the doors timeline for us while you do it. Yeah, so these are broad strokes. 65 is when they form. They start playing around L.A. They get to open for big names like Whiskey A Go-Go and places like that. They try out-of-the-box things and, and try to make short films because they're, they're, you know, they're in film school. They make short films to promote their songs, right? Totally far out at the time. 67, they get a deal with Elektra, and they release Light My Fire, and it becomes a huge smash immediately and ed sullivan invites them on the show the plan is supposedly to have them on six times but they ask morrison to change girl we couldn't get much higher to girl we couldn't get much better and light my girl, fire much better and he refuses once he gets on stage like first he's like sure sure and then he gets on stage and he doesn't do it and so they get banned from coming back to the show yeah and another iconic thing that happens for Morrison in 67 too, this guy, Joel Brodsky, he'll take a series of photos, which we're just kind of referencing, of Morrison without a shirt on, right? And that's the thing that a lot of people, it's like the iconic image of Morrison when you think about it. A lot of people, they've seen that print, they've seen that photo, and that's the image you have in your head, the forever right now, young Morrison. That's, that's what you're thinking of right now if you're thinking about Jim Morrison. This is another point about dying young, right? We think about, you already said this, but we think about this Morrison, right? He doesn't age past this period. Yeah. And uh, as a side note, because we love those on this show, uh, we could do a whole episode on Brodsky. 
So he goes on to be responsible for the covers of some iconic records. And then he just, like, he's funny because a lot of guys, like, start shooting ads and then they shoot for bands. He shoots for bands and then he sells out and goes and shoots ads. But if you know classic album covers, these will all make sense. This was all the same yeah. guy. Yeah, this is the same guy. So he did Vans uh, Astral Works. Uh huh. Have it. The self titled Stu- self-titled Stooges record. Uh huh. Kick out the jams, MC5, Maggot Brain. Envision these. They all they all look similar if you start thinking about yeah. what these look like. And then there's other stuff. Uh, Isaac Hayes, Ohio Players, and even Carly Simon. But it starts with Shirtless Morrison. And then at the end of 67, you get this onstage arrest that's going to continue to cement Morrison's embodying of this rebellious rock and roll ethos. Yeah. So you get to hear Rayman Zarek tell the story in a video that's in the show notes here, if you want to listen to that. The long and the short of it is Morrison is making out with a girl backstage in the shower before the show, and a cop comes up and tells them they have to leave, and Morrissey, bas- Morrissey, ah, Morrison basically tells the cop to, you know, to chill out, and then he gets maced, which is crazy. But pretty quickly, the cop then is told who Jim is, and he gets really apologetic, and he makes a mistake. He says something akin to... Well, if I'd known who you were, and this is the wrong thing to say to Jim Morrison, it makes Morrison really mad. Yeah, and so this is the arrest thing. So he gets on stage that night, and he tells this story while they're playing in the background. So it's it's the organ playing Brian's like least favorite n- noise in the world, <laughs> other than baby babies crying. And he starts <laughs> he starts singing a little blue man in a little, a little blue, blue hat in a, a little, little blue, blue pig. pig. And he tells the audience, because I'm famous, I wasn't going to get maced, but I'm just like you guys. And if they do it to me, they'll do it to you. And, well, you, you and might, that didn't work out. Yeah, cops did not like that. They, they literally go on stage and arrest him in front of everybody. The charges are inciting a riot, indecency, and public obscenity. People lose their minds and cause a bunch of trouble in New Haven. And there are 13 non-Morrison arrests. So he gets arrested and then a bunch of fans get arrested. And remember the car accident song, Peace Frog, we mentioned that earlier. There's another line in that song that mentions blood in the streets in the town of New Haven, which is an allusion to this. Yeah, far out, right? The charges eventually get dropped, even though that continues to stick to his reputation no matter what. This leads us to the spring of 68, and this is where we get to talk. The, the question we got from Carla, was there really an onstage fight with Hendrix? Okay, so we have a grip on Morrison, but if we're going to understand this story a little more fully, we have to understand the setting there's a really important key to this whole story, and that is a place in New York in the 60s called The Scene. The Scene was also known as Steve Paul's The Scene, and it was in the basement of, here's the address, 301 West 46th Street, and that's in the theater district in New York. Uh, This dude, Steve Paul, he will tell people that he had been obsessed with the idea of owning a nightclub since he was a little kid. So he becomes a publicist for the Peppermint Lounge. That's where the twist happens earlier in the 60s. And then in 64, he opens this club and he calls it The Scene. Steve Paul once described the purpose of his club in this way. So everybody pay attention. This is a great mantra. Quote, to use music as a common denominator for the fusion between music musicians, people who like music and people who are music in their very being. Mind, Mind Smoke Records has this excellent piece on the scene that you can find in the show notes if you want to go super deep. There's like they've archived all these old articles from the mid '60s about the place. They've got actual shots of the newsprint, the whole thing, and it it's got a bunch of compilations of 
references to the scene in different books and biographies. So if you want to go really deep on what this place was like, you can do it just uh, by clicking into the show notes. But for Carla and, and everybody else listening, so Warhol will hang out there. So obviously the Velvet Underground will too. Traffic, Fleetwood Mac would play there. And then Hendrix gets some serious stage time there. And all this is pre-Woodstock because this place gets closed because apparently they did not give the mob their money, and that's all mid-69. Yeah, we'll talk about that. The The scene is very important to Jimi Hendrix lore, though. First off, his first New York performances happen there. But more importantly, it becomes his favorite place to hang out when he's in New York. And this is from David Henderson's biography of Hendrix, Excuse Me While I Kiss the Sky. Here's the quote. Out front, a big lighted, lighted entrance. Inside are narrow rectangular panels leading up to a dim box office. You sweep past in a zigzag-shaped maze room with tiny tables and tiny back chairs, but up on the tiny stage, two feet off the floor, that's where the music happens. And then later in that section, I love it, he writes, Jimmy soon found the scene club irresistible. Fans did not hassle you there. It was dark and intimate, almost uh, like a labyrinth, yet you could go there and party or play and just sit alone and drink, and no one restrained you either way. And most important of all was that he could play there. He could play anytime he wanted to. He could woodshed right in the middle of NYC. The scene club was like a mini forum model for every arena he would ever play. The shouting stark frenzy of the close room is what he brought with him to every stage around the world. It was always the small intimate room he was really playing to. And this was really playing to what Steve Paul's vision for the scene was. He wanted to be inside the action himself. And this, uh, there's this really telling quote from a profile on him in 67, where he says, quote, doctors and do-gooders and firemen and free thinkers had to go to bed at night. Nightclub owners didn't. Someday I'd grow up and own me a nightclub. I create me a world of reality within the world of reality. Make your dreams come true. And if it can happen to you, it would be called the scene, a place where Together, people would get together. I'd own it, but so would you. And I'd work there, but so would you. And I'd play there, but so would you. Anyone listening who has done any scholarship on Jimi Hendrix knows about the scene. Because there's a period where he's working close, like very close to it in town, and he's recording. And he starts going very late at night and holding court on stage at the scene. I think of this a bit like, how you hear about the comedy seller in the stand-up world sometimes, right? Like sometimes yeah. the biggest names just show up and walk on stage and nobody's ready for it. Right. Totally. Exactly. This is a quote from Al Cooper. Um, shout out to Al Cooper describing the situation. So quote, when the late shows finishes finished, excuse me, the waitresses would begin their cleanups and the participants from that night's jams would gather in the dressing rooms. The unknowingly, Paying customers would settle their bills, set out for the suburbs, and then the action would actually begin. We'd slowly come out like bats in the night and take over the stage. I, I love that quote. And remember, you just read that quote about Steve Paul and his drive to create a place that would be a refuge of sorts for the artists. That's what this is all about. Everybody else goes home and the artists are still partying. And a lot of time, Jimmy would bring a reel-to-reel tape recorder with him and he would record these jams. So you can actually hear some. So... Hit the show notes, or you can Google Jimi Hendrix and the Scene Club, and the internet has great things, I promise. So just to give you some, uh, like a sense of who else is there, Rick Derringer is in the house band. 
I, they, they call themselves the McCoys at the time. Johnny and Edgar Winter are both making regular appearances and playing there. Uh, one night, members of Fleetwood Mac will take the stage. Uh, it's a lot of big names, but it may never be quite as big as it is on a day that I, I've narrowed down to, I think it's in March. It's definitely in the spring of 1968. Louder Sound did a great oral history on this, and you can find it in the show notes. We're going to be borrowing from it heavily here when you hear quotes. So, Carla, thanks for your letter. Basically, on this particular night, Jimmy has taken to the stage to jam, and Janice is in the crowd. And then, guess who shows up? Handsome Jim. Jim Morrison walks in, and he's hammered, fucked up on something. This is a quote from an audience member. When Morrison showed up, he was very intoxicated. God knows on what, and he was slurring and very stoned. Jim was an honorary character when he wanted to be. And he immediately came in the club and started messing with Janice. This, this is a quote from Sam Andrew, who is in Big Brother and the Holding Company. So the way I understand this, most of Big Brother and the Holding Company is there that night, right? And so they're watching their, you know, their lady, Janice, and seeing what's happening. And this is what he says happens. Jim swaggered over to where Janice and me were sitting, and without any provocation at all, he just yanked her hair down to the floor. I don't really understand that. I guess just pulled on her hair. That's a weird move. She was already very jaundiced about him. Also an interesting phrasing. So then she hit him with a bottle of Southern Comfort. Broke it. It was almost like a vaudeville act. And I can see it being a vaudeville act. So can you hear Ray Manzarek playing the organ as like <laughs> fast, super fast while he's doing it? Yeah. Or <laughs> uh, so Danny Fields, who was a publish a publicist at Electra at the time, he'll go on to have a big hand in rock history. But he's starting out at this point in '68, and he's quoted in this oral history as saying that he doesn't know why Janice didn't like Jim. Yeah, Danny has a quote uh, with uh, Janice's. Uh, this is a quote from Danny. Janice's hatred of Morrison. I don't know where it started, but if you mentioned Jim's name, she would say that asshole. We probably could have a whole episode about that. <laughs> well, okay, we'll so this is the, that was my thing, right? I read that and I was like, "There's got to be more to that. There's got to be a backstory." So I started digging because that's what we do on this show, and I found a story that I think gives us some insight. Now. I don't have a super clear timeline on this, but I'm assuming that what I'm about to describe to you happened before that night in question in the spring of 68 at the scene. Right. Um, so basically, they both work at the same time with Paul Rothschild, who's a producer. Yeah, he's producing both of them. And, he produces Pearl, and then he does some Doors records. And then he thinks they should meet, right? So he gets them to the same party and introduces them, and things are good at first. And then Morrison gets wasted and very aggressive. Are you seeing a pattern? This is from a Paul Rothschild interview. Okay. Quote, he turned into a Cretan, talking about Jim Morrison, and also Cretan. Great word. There's a lot of great words in these quotes. He turned into a Cretan, a disgusting drunk, and Janice was a charming drunk. And she was really put off by him. The more Janice rejected him, the more Jim loved it. This was kind of his kind of match. Janice finally said to me, let's get out of here. And we went to the band station wagon that she always drove. Jim came staggering over. He reached into the car and started to say something, and she told him to fuck off. She was not interested anymore. Jim wasn't going to take no for an answer, though, and he reached into the car and grabbed Janice by the hair. There's the hair again. She picked up a bottle of Southern Comfort, reached out of the car, and wailed him in the head, and he was out cold. So 
if that is true and it happened before this night at the scene, it makes her reaction easier to understand. But I but guess. these stories are weirdly similar. Like, are we to believe right. that Janis Joplin hit Jim Morrison in the face with a bottle of Southern Comfort on two separate occasions after on both of those occasions he pulled her hair? Like, what the hell? Regardless, we do know that all three of these characters are now in the building of that night. In 1968, we have Jimmy, Jim, and Janice. Now, let's get to the question at hand that Carla had. What actually happens on stage? So, the way I understand it, Jimmy is actively playing. Jim Morrison gets up and attempts to join in. And this is Lester Chambers from the Chambers Brothers. So the Chambers Brothers would play there a lot. And he describes what happens. He says, when Morrison got onto the stage, his voice was heard. He made a couple of, oh, whoa, whoa, kind of noises. He was so drunk, he had to hold onto the mic stand. And every once in a while, he'd go, ooh, wow, wowee. And at one point, this is the best. Jimmy said, ladies and gentlemen, you have now heard the sound of Jim Morrison. It's <laughs> so amazing. Oh, my gosh. That's the thing. It's amazing. You, well, you could just picture him getting being so irritated, right? Like, he's here he is trying to have fun, trying to be... I mean, I'm sure he's pretty high, too, and, and trying to just do his art. And he's got this other guy who's coming in and, and clearly stealing some of his thunder. And it gets wilder. Jim, at some point, ends up on his hands and knees. I don't know if he falls. It sounds like if you if you piece together that Chambers Brothers recollection about him being really drunk and having to hold onto the mic stand, it makes me think that he falls. But he's now on his hands and knees, and he crawls over to Jimi Hendrix. And while Jimmy is playing music, he starts mimicking the act of fellatio. And this is something that I heard, too. This is pretty well documented. Like, this isn't a single point of view. I read this in pretty much any version of this story. This does happen. And this is a quote from Danny Fields. This is the guy who was working at Electra at the time. So Morrison has his arms wrapped around Jimmy's legs, and he's still screaming. He was very loud, and Hendrix was still attempting to play. Morrison wouldn't let go. It was a tasteless exhibition of scene stealing, something that Morrison was really into. So here you go. This is another, you alluded to this earlier, right? Like earnestness, but also confidence. And also, is it confidence or is it like total insecurity when, when you are, when you have to be in the limelight, right? Back to this quote from Danny. To top it all off, Janice, who had been sitting in the back of the room, saw this happening and suddenly appeared at the edge of the stage with a bottle in one hand and her drink in the other. This is another quote. From Danny Fields, and I love this. Quote, Morrison had been sending off danger signals from the moment he got there. He was behaving like someone from the sewers. Have <laughs> you ever felt that way about your kids? You're like, that's no, that's the no, best that's the best way to describe how you're probably not the way Jim Morrison was. But I you know, sometimes I watch them eat and I'm like, You you're you look like you're someone from the sewers. Uh, I, I never have thought that, and I've never <laughs> thought that about a person, and I can't it's a new one for me. Just New stuff. The the way I understand it, Janice hits Jim with a bottle. Again. Again. So this would be two that night, one the previous night, if all of these happened. So she's swinging that Southern comfort. Uh, and, and then all three of them, Jim, Jimmy, and Janice, somehow end up on the floor in a fight. I don't understand exactly how Jimi Hendrix gets on the floor. I don't know if it's because Morrison has his arms around his legs and then... Janice comes and hits Jim. That seems to be what happens. And, and then it, it becomes Keystone Cops, Three Stooges shit. Like, 
they're on the floor, and when one of the eyewitnesses is is on the record as saying that basically, like in his mind, when he thinks about this, there's like a dust cloud around them. <laughs> like it's just full on cartoonish mayhem, and then it has to be broken up, and the three of them is, are sent their separate ways. Yeah, um, that is absolutely just totally. I mean, and I've always wanted to know if that's. The like that was a really a thing, and I can't imagine what it would been like to be there for that, and, and just to be right? to look up there and be like, "That is Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and Jim Morrison wrestling." It, it would it would be a it would be a sight. So there was a detail I mentioned earlier that is worth revisiting. Remember when I said that Jimmy, or maybe you said, Jimmy's been recording these jam sessions. There are bootlegs and reissues of some of these tapes. You can still find them on Amazon. One is called Jimi Hendrix Live at the Scene Club 1968. And it can, and it's it's a rehash of a rehash or whatever. But for like 30 bucks, you can get this. And it does have on it a track titled Morrison's Lament. And as I dug through this, I found a, a customer review from 2008, a fan named Richard P. Mayhew which is a great name when you're leaving a review on Amazon. And he left a review for this. And I feel like it's good enough to really read at least part of it. Do you, do you want to read this in, in your best Amazon review voice? Yes. This may be the worst CD ever. It's a remake <laughs> of the Nutmeg Records, Red Vinyl High Live, dirty LPs from the early 80s. Yeah, I know I rated it five stars, but I'll explain in a minute. This is without a doubt the worst collection of Jimi Hendrix, quote, music ever. The session was taped in a New York nightclub in 1968. The title says Jimmy must have been wasted that night. Very wasted. He misses every note and forgets every line to every song. Song is probably the wrong word to use. There are no <laughs> songs here. It's just drug and booze soaked jam edit sessions. His backing band is atrocious. And it sounds like people keep bumping up on stage and joining his band attempt to make something that sounds like a song. Which is it actually is what's happening. That's actually, we documented that's what's happening. And the comments caught on tape are pretty funny. You can just imagine the rowdy, stoned-out 1960s scene going down. You would probably appreciate this album a lot more if you did 60s-style drugs. It's flat-out awful. But, he continues, here's the good part. Jim Morrison was in attendance that night, and he jumps up on stage and tries to join in. He is even more wasted than Jimi Hendrix, if you can believe that. The song's Morrison's Lament also known as F-H-I-T-A, which I'm going to let you figure out what that means in a moment, is nothing more than a drunken Morrison rolling around the floor on the stage, repeating the words, back in the early 80s when I bought this album, my buddies and I would sit around and get hammered and listen to good stuff like Axis Boldest Love or Are You Experienced? Yeah. And then after we were good and ripped, we'd slapped High Life and Dirty on and we could not stop laughing. I used to hurt myself laughing at that. We'd play that damn song over and over and eat about a hundred bags of Doritos. <laughs> yeah, I bet. And I've got, I've got good news. I was able to find the clip. I mean, it's unbelievable that that exists. 
as as audio on the internet. I mean, it's um, it's just amazing it does exist. <laughs> Sterling, Sterling Morrison from the Velvet Underground in a 1970 interview comments about the last days at the scene. Quote, the mafia was beating people up. They were having these incredible fights. So Steve Paul just shut it down. The liquor laws work in such a way that if you have a trouble spot in your liquor license, it can be revoked. So organized uh, crime comes in and says, I want a piece of the action. If they say no, you can't have it. So they just a giant fights start there. And then the clubs lose their license. And that's what happened at the scene. Yeah. So we mentioned that earlier. Like the scene isn't around for that long. He opens it in 64, closes it in 69. That's five years. And then as for these three performers, there's an unsettling element to this story in that all three of these folks are members of the 27 Club, maybe the three most famous members of the 27 Club. Yeah. And they all from died. From that time period. Yeah, definitely from the time period. And, and sort of the original class. And, and, and they all die a couple of years after this incident within 10 months of each other. I didn't realize it was that close. Yeah. Yeah, so imagine, imagine too, like, when, you know, here what we've had in the last however many years where bands had to get up on stage and play Purple Rain because Prince had died. Right. Like imagine because I've, I've, there's a, there's a Led Zeppelin show and it's in New York and it's like the day after Hendrix died and they address the crowd about that. Like how that, how crazy that must've been um, for someone of that caliber to talk about that, to bring some levity to this. This is funny. I did not know there was a, there's a got to be a Doris song that you like. And do you like Roadhouse Blues? Do you like that one? Uh, this is a good question. I'm trying to think of the closest I get to liking a Doors song. Um, and sure, let's say I like Roadhouse Blues. Okay, so I did not know that was a Doors song. All I knew <laughs> was that on my senior trip to Panama City Beach, I was hanging out, and these. this is really a true story. These girls picked up me and some friends. They were in a convertible Ford Fairlane, a green Ford Fairlane. And dude, how cool am I from my little redneck high school riding around with these girls I've never met. (laughs) And we go to Club La Vila. Shout out to anybody that's ever been to Panama City Beach. I couldn't get into Club La Vila. The one time I went to, to PCB, man, I was too young. And we were like plotting the whole week trying to get into Club La Vila. I just remember the last thing I remember being in there before being kicked out with all these girls, the girls got to stay and I got kicked out with some other people and I wasn't do. I just was totally underage um, was I woke up this morning, got myself a beer. And it just seemed like the <laughs> cover band was doing that for like 20 minutes and then doing like call and response just with that. Uh, like it's not really a call response part of the song, <laughs> but they made that the call and response. And so that stuck with me. And I, then I never thought that was a Doors song. I was like, that has to be someone else. Was, no, but that, was Club Avila doing like the, the soap bubbles thing at the time? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Because that's what they become known for, right? That's, yeah, I mean, that seems like a harsh turn to go from the Doors Roadhouse Blues from a cover band into <laughs> just dropping soap suds onto yeah. you know, young bodies. Wowzers. Well, I, I, I got to say, this this is a great question. I'm sort of surprised we haven't gotten to this story earlier in the series. And uh, I, I'm, yeah. I'm glad we finally did. So, uh, And thank, thanks for the letter, Carla. 
Great letter. Uh, so if you want to send us a letter, you can do that too. It's we are the story guys at gmail.com. Uh, you can get involved. Instagram.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories and patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories is an easy way for you to uh, support the show. If you want to, you know, give us a few bucks, get some extra bonus stuff, and it helps us keep producing content for you. We really appreciate that. Um, and until next time, Murdoch. What's people keep keep telling stories? Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.